You may be seated. So about 12 years ago, a bunch of Lutherans in Minnesota got together and created a preaching plan called the Narrative Lectionary. It's a four-year cycle of preaching through the Bible. And because I chose to follow it when I became your pastor last year, this week we will read the story of David and Bathsheba. This week in the wake of a new Supreme Court justice and rallies protesting rape culture on college campuses and the body of a homeless woman being set on fire in a park in Columbus. We read a story about lust and coveting and lying and murder. Is it coincidence or is it God? Or you can blame the Lutherans. To get to this story, we have to take a big leap through history from where we left the ancient Hebrews receiving their Ten Commandments in the desert. Now it's hundreds of years later, and the descendants of those slaves have settled in the land of their ancestors. They built some cities, and they fought some wars, and they've got themselves a nice little monarchy. And although God warned the people that a king would bring them trouble, they wanted one anyway. They couldn't live in faith. They wanted to be like the nations around them. So David that we meet this morning is their second king, and he's remembered as their greatest. He is the boy who killed a giant. He is a man after God's own heart. He is the ancestor of Jesus. But he is far from perfect. And this morning we hear the story of what happens when he chooses to ignore who he is and whose he is and what he's been called to do. Go ahead. In the spring, at the time when kings were off the war, David sent Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Reba. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Let me give you the Cliff Notes version of what happens next. David does not want to be responsible for this child. Desperate to cover up what he has done, David has Bathsheba's husband Uriah sent home from the front. Because if Uriah sleeps with his wife, everyone will assume that he is the father of this child. Uriah comes straight to the palace, and after he greets the king, David encourages to go home, eat, drink, rest, and be with your wife. 
And Uriah refuses to do this because the other soldiers don't get to come home. When David realizes that Uriah is not going to cooperate and provide for the potential paternity of his child, David sends Uriah back to the front carrying his own death warrant. As requested by David, the general Joab deliberately makes a bad military decision and places Uriah at the most dangerous part of the fighting. Uriah is killed along with many other soldiers. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David. Nathan came to David and said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this thing must die. He must pay for that man four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wine into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be alone. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be alone. And this is the word of God for all people. In music theory, are you ready? Yeah, we'll do it. In music theory, there's a concept called resolving chords. So a resolved chord progression, the sound of the music, calls up resolved feelings in us. Feelings of things being settled of everything being in its place, of things being finished. The music makes us feel like being safe and being at home. And a resolved chord progression sounds like this. Nice and finished, right? Sounds good. On the other hand, there are also unresolved chord progressions, and they have their place in the music. 
They call up unresolved feelings in us. Feelings of dissonance, of unfinished business, of being unsettled or of being away from home, if you will. The music actually leaves us longing for resolution. And an unresolved chord progression sounds like this. Thank you, Brian. The <laughs> that was so perfect, guys, because we just can't leave it, right? It hurts. It almost hurts to leave it. And the more times that I read this week's story, and the more I wrestled with it, the more it hurt me to leave it. I felt like I was listening to an unresolved chord progression over and over and over again. And friends, I have to tell you right up front that this chord is not going to get resolved this morning. There is no way for me to resolve this story, to wrap it up nicely with a bow for you before we leave. But, as we all know, sometimes the ugly stories have the most to teach us. The hard times in our lives are the ones that make us stronger, that lead us greater, that lead us to greater growth and deeper maturity. We face them with courage because we face them together and we know that God is always with us. So let's see what in this difficult and unresolved text might lead us to maturity this morning. The first thing I want to point out to you is the power of perception. What we get from the story depends on how we tell it. And like all stories, how we tell it depends on who is telling it. And for most of our history, this story has been told and retold, painted on canvas, scripted for the movie screen, and scored for the opera by people who were more like David than they were like Bathsheba. David treats Bathsheba like an object, something that he can possess. And most often, those who retell the story do so as well. And unfortunately, this is often the case with biblical stories about women. So this morning, I'd like to challenge our perception a little bit. Bathsheba is portrayed in literature, art, and film as a seductive temptress, bathing somewhere the king can see her. But the Bible never says that she's bathing in public. You can look it up if you want to. She is not on a roof. He is on a roof. Think about it. If David is up in a palace, he could have had lines of sight into many areas that people would have expected to have privacy. Just because Bathsheba could be seen doesn't mean that she wanted to be seen. Every time I walk alone at night, I wish I were invisible. Because all too often in our culture, to be visible is to be vulnerable. And if you've ever been bullied or abused by anyone, you know what I'm talking about. 
Bathsheba apparently came to the palace on her own two feet. They didn't drag her. Well, why would she not come? Her good and noble and God-fearing king, the spiritual and governmental leader of her people, the man whose war her husband was currently fighting, had sent messengers to get her. Of course she went. How would she know what was going to happen? Just because Bathsheba willingly entered a room where a man was didn't mean she wanted to be left alone in the room with that man. Being present is not the same thing as being sexually available. And after this encounter, Bathsheba returns home. The record doesn't record her emotional reaction. And so we tell the story that her silence equals her consent. That if she didn't manage to physically fight him off, she must have wanted it. Being unwilling to talk about a sexual encounter doesn't mean it's not a big deal to you. Often it means it was a traumatically big deal. Because we only keep secrets about the things that scare us. This one night stand between David and Bathsheba is often perceived as adultery. But I'm going to suggest to you this morning that a more realistic perception is that it was at least coerced sexual encounter between a powerful person and a vulnerable person. Perhaps it was even sexual assault. And if that perception bothers us, we should ask ourselves why. What are we afraid of losing if we change our perception about David and Bathsheba? Will we have to change our perceptions about the Bible? Will we have to change our perceptions about other situations that we know about? Will we have to change our perceptions about other people that we know about? What is at stake when we choose to tell any story from a different perspective? The second thing I want to point out is something Miss Mary alluded to, the power of privilege. The perception of adultery persists because David is privileged and we hesitate to tarnish his reputation with a charge of non-consensual sexual activity. David is so privileged that no one says to him, why are you lounging at home, taking naps and spying on women while your soldiers are out enlarging your territory? David is so privileged that none of his messengers say to him, no, I won't bring you a woman who isn't your wife or one of the many wives you already have. Or no, I won't leave you alone in a room with her. David is so privileged that his general doesn't say to him, no, I won't sacrifice dozens or hundreds of men to arrange a death that is convenient for you. David is so privileged that no earthly power can call him to account. No court can sentence him to the death penalty that was called for in Israelite law in cases of rape or adultery. David believes he is too big to fail, 
And the tragedy is that everyone else believes it too. Think about how different this story would have been if any of these bystanders had been upstanders instead. If they had refused to let his privilege get the last word and challenged his actions. Maybe they could have saved Bathsheba. Maybe they could have saved Uriah. Maybe they could have saved David from himself. There's an old quote that goes, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. When we look the other way, when we cross to the other side of the street, when we politely smile at a racist or a homophobic joke, when our first reaction is skepticism instead of compassion, when we willingly abdicate our right to participate in free elections, when we complain on Facebook instead of getting personally involved, when we write sermons and fail to live them, when we do nothing, evil triumphs and we are complicit. Now at this point, you might be thinking, Beth, you sound really angry. And you would be correctly interpreting my mood. I am angry. I am angry about a lot of things that I have seen. And I'm angry about things I've experienced. And I feel okay about that because Jesus was angry about injustice. But as Christians, we are called to be something more than angry. Which is why the final thing that I want to point out from this story is the power of repentance. Because David is called a man after God's own heart. Not a man after God's own heart except for this one time. A man after God's own heart, period. What is beautiful here? is that the worst thing that David ever did is not the last word about him. After Nathan calls him out in that story that Russ read, David confesses. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. He's also sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, but that sort of gets included. When David finally chooses to see the truth about himself and his actions, his reaction is repentance and remorse. After this conversation with Nathan, David writes a poem that becomes, that becomes Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, because I know my wrongdoings. My sin is always right in front of me. I have committed evil in your sight. That's why you are justified when you render your verdict and completely correct when you issue your judgment. Create a clean heart for me, O oh God. Place a new, faithful spirit deep in me. Please do not throw me out of your presence. Please don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Return the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me with a willing spirit, and then I will teach wrongdoers your ways, and sinners will come back to you. You don't want sacrifices. If I gave an entirely burnt offering, you would not be pleased. A broken spirit is my sacrifice. That's what David says. 
Because only repentance and forgiveness heals the soul of the perpetrator. And in turn, their sincere remorse can ignite healing and restoration in their victim. Now, I told you that this story doesn't resolve, and I meant it. Here's the thing. God's forgiveness is not the same as pardon. God forgives David, but it does not keep David from experiencing the consequences of what he has done. We are not letting him off the hook this morning, y'all. This incident sets off a chain reaction in David's family that results in one of his daughters being incestuously raped and four of his sons dying and at least two attempts at a coup to overthrow him. God's forgiveness is not a free pass, but it is a restoration of our souls. It is being freed from the feeling that we don't deserve to try again. It is the empowerment to apologize and to demonstrate our remorse to the people that we have hurt. It is the radical affirmation that oppressed and oppressor are equally loved by God and also that God does not condone injustice. So we can be angry, but we must also be humble because we all have something that we don't want to be remembered for. And we must also be compassionate because we all have something that has been done to us that we want to forget. And we must, we absolutely must be courageous because evil will triumph if the people of God do nothing. We have been blessed to be a blessing, to join God in a revolution that will eventually turn the world not upside down, but right side up. Amen.